0: Hello, welcome to
1: another
2: episode of History Hack.
1: Alex, who have we got on? Oh, today's going to be good. I did this one just for you. We have with us today John Hosler, who is a medievalist and a professor at the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. He's the author of books on John of Salisbury and Henry II, but today he's here to talk crusades. John, welcome.
0: Hello, thank you for having me on. No, thank you. How is Kansas? Oh, it's wonderful. It's a little chilly today, but the snow's gone away and the sun is out, so you can't ask for much more than that.
1: I don't know why I'm confused by the thought of snow in Kansas. It's not that far south, is it?
0: Uh, no, it's actually in the geographic center of America. We're right in the middle. Heartland. Yeah, yeah.
1: But so- we're going very, very far away from there today, aren't we?
0: <laughs> we are.
2: <laughs> I'm actually excited because I've been there and I've been on uh, a tour with a with an archaeologist. So I'm super yeah. excited to start talking about this. Um So can you start us off with the causes of the Third Crusade and why they were at Acre?
0: Sure. So yeah, it's an unlikely place to start, but it all goes back to um, the the Sultan Saladin's great victory at Hattin in 1187, on July 4th, 1187, uh, where he smashed the army of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in a very famous uh, battle. And after that battle, the idea was if the the kingdom's army had been destroyed, then the holy city itself, Jerusalem, was wide open. I mean, it was defended by walls, but mean the garrison. But uh, really needed to be protected by, a, by an army in the vicinity. And since that army was now gone, everyone sort of figured that Jerusalem was toast, right? And um, this was known in the Levant, and it's also known back west. So you have uh, the popes who receive news about this, uh, Pope Urban III was his name, he, he finds out about the, the um, defeat at hatin and supposedly dies instantly of a heart attack, just drops over, keels over dead, uh, because he knew what it meant. Uh, that, at least that's what the sources allege, right? He says Jerusalem is lost, basically. And so his successor, Gregory VIII, uh, the next pope, uh, determines that, you know, we need, we need a crusade. Um, we figure Jerusalem is lost and we're going to have to try to get it back. And so let's start assembling an army to get it back. Uh, but the problem is by the time the Crusaders are going to be able to make it over to the East, Saladin has conquered so much. There's very few places to go. Um, and so the you have to pick a place to start and, and Acre is going to be the place that, that they start. And so the first uh, thrust of the um, counter to Saladin is going to be at the city of Acre to take that city back. That would, gives you a port on the Mediterranean uh, and then you can bring in your um, reinforcements and your supplies through that port and kind of prosecute the larger war so Acre ends up being that that place that the first point of contact let's take this and then deal with the uh, with the rest of the problem rescuing Jerusalem and everything afterwards
1: if we look a bit more about the major players in this I absolutely love Saladin uh, he's a towering figure in history in Islamic history isn't he can you tell us a bit more about him
0: yeah, he's um, you know, an enormously um, – he's, he's a simple figure on one hand and then very complicated on the other. Um, we, we know a lot about his life, um, his um, really amazing rise to power, his, uh, his toppling of the, uh, the Shia caliphate in Egypt, um, and his um, sort of dominance over um, Egypt and Mesopotamia and Syria and those sorts of regions. Um, on the other hand, what's interesting about Saladin, we have all this historical information, but then there's the legend of Saladin in which um, you have later people uh, writing, and here I'm talking about in, in much later centuries, all the way up into the 20th century, uh, talking about Saladin and kind of constructing this legacy of his, this idea that Saladin was um, was was very generous man, was a very fair man, respected the law, respected other cultures and other religions, that he wasn't just this, this sort of bloodthirsty jihadist, but it was sort of a complex figure and a, a very cultured figure, and a lot of that is is true. A lot of that, you see the seeds for that in the historical information. You see acts of generosity. You see him treating people uh, from the, the Crusader camp very well. Um, you, you see these sorts of things um, that he's doing, but the legend kind of obscures the, the, the things that he is that are not so nice. <laughs> so he is also executing prisoners, uh, and he is um, doing dastardly deeds on his own. Uh, but what gets pulled out in the legend is sort of the, the – best qualities uh, so much so that um, if you fast forward to the 1970s even somebody like President Jimmy Carter is speaking very well of Saladin um, because that that's the level of respect that people have for him uh, in the Middle Ages he is cast almost as uh, by the time you get to the 14th and 15th century almost like a Christian knight uh, full of chivalry and um, you know these, these great qualities that people want to look up to and there is part of that to the story. Definitely. He's a, um, a very interesting and respectable figure for his time. Um, what the legend does leave behind are the, are the unsavory parts. I get into a little bit of that in, um, in the book where it says, well, you know, this kind of you know, talking about these parts that don't get talked about so much, but Saladin really wasn't always everything he's cracked up to be, but certainly um, enduringly fascinating. And there are uh, there's just a new biography that came out on him last year, um, and books seem to keep coming and coming about Saladin. He's one of those complex figures you can keep talking about.
2: So on the other side, we have Philip Augustus and Richard the Lionheart, or aka Sean Connery. Is that right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. For part of the siege you do, they actually come in very late. Uh, Philip gets to uh, Acre first, but he doesn't get there until April of 1191. So the Crusaders have already been about their business for um, for a year and a half. And then Richard doesn't arrive until June, until the summertime. Um, so they're kind of late to the party, but they are for sure the, the dominating um, Christian figures. And it's at Acre that they make some of their reputation. Uh, Philip leaves after the siege. He departs from the crusade and goes back to France. And so that's where people get the, the whole coward motif and the idea that uh, Philip was a schemer and um, just did the crusade for propaganda's sake. But he was really interested in grabbing Richard's lands uh, back on the continent while um, the Lionheart was away. Uh, and I, I I contest some of that, but um, but you know, broad strokes, you uh, you see that accusation in the sources, and then the Lionheart being this this great, of course, chivalry. I mean, this is you know the Richard the whose statue is in front of um, Westminster Hall, and um, everybody looks up to as this this great um, Crusader King because he was the only English king to go on crusade.
1: I'm um, visiting bits of him. I've done two out of three. So I've done Fontainebleau and I've done Cathedral. So it's just, I've done the heart and I've done the body, but there isn't there the arm.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. you've got somewhere else, yeah, Yeah. and and that and that location in France is lovely, isn't it? With the uh, with the effigies, um, yes, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, and especially when it's silent and you just oh, it's a wonderful place, right?
1: Well, it's the kind of thing that Henry VIII would have trashed here as well. So the fact that it survives and you've got those medieval effigies um, that weren't sort of tossed on a bonfire. Or yeah, unlike their
0: predecessors, you know William the Conqueror was um, was ripped out, I believe, during the French Revolution. I think, and uh, because sort was torn asunder. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so bad things can happen in the um, in, in the um, in the days of the grave. So
1: this is true. But so okay, who is in charge um, on the Crusader side, and how are the two sides laid out for the beginning of the siege?
0: Sure. So the first person in charge really is a man by the name of Guy de Lusignan. Um, King Guy, who is the titular king of Jerusalem. He was married to a woman named Sybil, uh, who was the queen of Jerusalem. And he led the first body of soldiers to Acre, probably about 7,500 soldiers thereabouts. Um, He's the first one to march there and to besiege the city. Later on, Guy is going to be joined by numerous other Christian leaders, some of whom he's friends with and some of whom he's rivals with. Uh, one of his rivals, um, Conrad de Montferrat, uh, the Marquis, shows up. Um, as well as later on down the line, you have um, the Count of Troyes. Um, you have Geoffrey um, um, de Lusignan, who plays a, um, a, a key role throughout the process, as well as several ecclesiastical leaders, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, Uh, these sorts of figures. So there's a a lot of leaders and um, really what you have are sort of armies at Acre, not just one Christian army, but several factions of different groups um, of different ethnicities and hailing from different locales. And they tend to camp by those who they think are of like mind um, and sometimes splinter depending on what's going on. So you have sort of these low level leaders. And so the situation is essentially this, you've got these guys like Guy and Conrad and they're massing their army outside the city. Inside the city is a Muslim garrison, um, maybe as many as 10,000 strong, we're not sure, but it had just been reinforced by Saladin himself. Um, So he has brought in extra men and materials and ammunition and these sorts of things. And so the Muslim garrison is holding the city and holding the port of Acre uh, where the ships come in. Outside the city, you have Guy and these assorted crusader groups. And then very soon after the siege begins, Saladin shows up with his field army, And he is outside of the Crusaders. So they end up being what I would call a Crusader sandwich, right? You've got uh, Muslims in the city, Muslims on the outside, and they're squished in between with nowhere to go. So they have to attack the city while at the same time fending off attacks from Saladin's army.
2: So where do the Christian clergy fit into all of this?
0: So they are in the camp. And they arrive at different times with different contingents, uh, but you have bishops, you have priests, you have deacons, you have other prelates who are um, around. They are helping to organize the camp to organize the soldiers at various times they um, they defend the camp, they actually take on the, the position of a of a commander and organize defenses uh, and then as well they they run around doing all sorts of different odd jobs. you find clergy mixing it up in the fight in very strange ways so for example there is a um in the source we don't know his name but one source talks about a priest who had a crossbow and he would take pot shots at the muslim defenders um once part of me is
1: like hell yeah you guys are going to run around doing all the work because you started this
0: right i mean the impulse is coming from rome so (laughs) there there might as well be some institutional Get your hands
1: dirty man. man (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, right. One of the most prominent ones is actually uh, is English, the, um, the Archb- um, Archbishop of Canterbury, Baldwin, um, who is there on camp and actually dies at Acre uh, from sickness. Damn and right. we have some I mean, we have some it's, letters. it's bad yeah. for him,
1: obviously. But I just—I had visions. You were going to say, "Oh no, they all just stayed at home. They sent everybody out into all this hardship and battle." Oh, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> now he
0: went. He actually—he actually led a preaching tour before the crusade to try to gin up some support for it. So, and then there was another one I wanted to throw. There's this priest who, um, again unnamed, but very interesting. Um, during the siege, the Muslim artillery in the city would would fire these shots and and try to destroy the the crusader catapults. And there was this priest, supposedly, who every time his catapult was destroyed, he would go over, help fix it, and then sprinkle some holy water on top, say a couple of blessings, and then back away. You know, and the (laughs) idea that hopefully this one won't be destroyed the next time around.
1: Let's talk about the siege, then. We're going to fire some points at you that you've given us, and if you could outline them for us. Some of these are great. Um, But let's start with one that's really controversial. Richard's execution of 2,700 Muslim prisoners.
0: Right, right, yeah, that is the that is the one that sort of makes the siege of Acre infamous and the the Third Crusade infamous. It's said to be the um, there's there, there's two great sins of the crusading period from the, from the Muslim perspective. One is the sacking of Jerusalem in 1099, uh, where the Christians go into the city and for three days kind of sack and, and, and kill people there. Uh, and and the second one is Richard's execution. Um, not not quite as bad in terms of the body count, but um, but equally notorious. And so the situation is essentially at the end of the siege. When you're into July and August eleven ninety one, you have the negotiations for the surrender of the city. And those negotiations are taking place between the garrison commanders and uh, and Philip Augustus and his magnates predominantly. and they're they're sketching out, well, what does it take to re- to, to surrender the city? What do you want um, Christians? And so the, the Christians have several demands for them. Um, they want the city, of course. They want, um, there's an argument over the property in the city. Do the, do the citizens get to keep their money or, or does it become a spoil of war? Um, then they also want a direct payment of uh, 200,000 uh, Byzants um, paid by Saladin. And then the return of something called the true cross, a holy relic, uh, this, this piece of wood that supposedly is part of the cross upon which Christ himself was crucified. The Muslims had taken that true cross at the battle of Hattin. So they say, so we want that back. We want the wood. We want the cash. We want the city, right? And then we also want a prisoner swap. You've got some of our prisoners. We have some of your prisoners, or we're going to, we're going to have this garrison, right? So let's do this, this prisoner swap. And so it enters into this very complex um, sort of this mix up in the sources and all the sources say different things. As the two sides wrangle back and forth with each other, once the deal is concluded and trying to satisfy the terms. So they're waiting for Saladin to return the true cross. They're waiting for Saladin to pony up the money. Trouble is Saladin is broke. He doesn't have the money. So he has to go around, you know, begging borrowing and stealing to, to get the money to pay the crusaders. Um, and so as time goes on, Saladin eventually basically does not fulfill the terms of the treaty. He doesn't provide the money. He doesn't provide the prisoners. He doesn't turn over the True Cross, and it just seems like he's stalling and stalling and stalling. And so Richard, who has a crusade to fight, he's you know, Acre as I mentioned is just the kind of first zone mm. of activity. He wants to get on with the crusade, and he doesn't know what to do with these prisoners. He can't keep them in the city. Um, they're they garrison soldiers, so they're they're militants. He can't just keep them there. There are no prisons per se. Uh, where he can hold them. Uh, And so he makes the decision to execute them uh, instead. And it's between 2,700 and some sources say 3,000 some, but you know, it's around 3,000 soldiers Uh, and they are taken outside of town and they're, and they're either beheaded or they're just um, stuck with a spear through the heart. Uh, And then once that's done, Richard marches on its way. So it's been um, very controversial ever since. Uh, why did Richard execute his prisoners? Did he have to execute his prisoners? Uh, usually, it's called a massacre, um, which carries very you know serious connotations that Richard is the is the one in the wrong. I make a point in the book that they're actually both in the wrong, that Saladin and Richard both violate different parts of the agreements and that neither one is really acting in good faith. Uh, but it's that one thing that people remember um, that there, that there was this um, the massacre of, of Muslims. And unfortunately it's become one of those um, nasty talking points if, uh, to bring it up to the modern age. If you remember the, uh, the New Zealand shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He actually, if you, if you look at his weapons, he had carved a number of battles into his weapons and Acre was one of them. So here he is remembering this purported massacre of Muslims as he is carrying out his own massacre. And so it's one of those unsavory things that's kind of lingered into the modern age.
2: What about games that were held at Acre? So archery and wrestling.
0: Yeah. You know the, um, we, I think we all know the famous story about the, uh, the football game in 1914 at the, um, on the Western <laughs> Front. Don't right. even
1: get me started on the Christmas <laughs> truce as a First World War historian. A large, right. large football game, okay, with Sylvester Stallone and Pele, and yeah, that one.
0: Yeah, and someone sent me the advertisement that had been done up a few years ago—the very stirring, dramatic thing. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, so, but that I, but I think the notion, right, that even in war there is camaraderie you have that at Acre and you don't often see signs of this in medieval chronicles of these things, but, but at Acre, you see a lot of them. And I just found it was very interesting. So you have a Muslim archer who challenges a Welshman to an archery contest, for example, and says, you know, I think I'm a better shooter than you. And they engage in ba- basically a duel and they say, okay, um, you know, the Welsh produced their best, their best guy, we'll produce our best guy and you just take turns shooting at each other. And, uh, and whoever, you know, dies first is the loser. And so you have this, um, I guess, I mean, contest, it's
1: a two, three-year siege, isn't it? There's boredom to contend almost with. Almost
0: two years. Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of downtime there. I mean, there's moments where you're attacking the walls and you're defending yourself. But a lot of times you're just kind of staring at the battlements and saying, you know, anything changed today? No, nothing's changed today. You know, do you have any food? No. Um, and so you kind of find ways to pass the time. And so you have this, this archery contest. The Welshman wins, by the way, uh, which sort of bolsters their reputation for for um, outstanding archery. Uh, And then there's, there's wrestling matches between the Muslims and the, uh, and the crusaders uh, where, you know, one gets pinned and gets taken prisoner uh, and then has to be ransomed back later on. The idea that, um, well, it's all fun and games and, um, and there's a consequence, but, uh, but, but you can have your guy back if you really want uh, and so it, you, you have those sorts of things happening. And if you imagine, you know, this big siege camp, as you said, there's a lot, you know, it's a lot of boredom and you're you're going about your daily business. Some days there's not a lot to do. Um, then you find ways to pass the time. And um, and I, I thought it was interesting um, how they – interacted with each other we tend to think of the crusades as oh well this you know muslim christian animosity and religious holy warfare and everyone hates each other but in reality they're soldiers uh and they have this grudging respect for each other i mean there's even like catcalling and name calling from the walls they're just like insulting each other and laughing at each other and you know all that sort of thing that um that you would expect when you have armies in close proximity
1: what about women? Are there women that actually, because obviously there's women in the crusade, but do they actually take part in this siege as
0: combatants? They do. Interestingly enough. Now you always have to wonder about some of the accounts of them because some of them come from the Arabic sources and you kind of scratch your head and say, yeah, I don't know. Is that true or not? Um, this is an image they're putting forward of, of a Christian woman and what, what she's doing. Um, but maybe it is. Some of these authors are pretty reliable. So you've got, um uh, Four Christian women who are disguised as knights for example and they're found out um, and so here, here are women who are armored up. Uh, there is an a, um, account in um, in multiple sources of Christian women actually getting involved in the violence so there's a story where a Muslim ship runs aground. It's trying to get into the port of Acre which is no- notoriously difficult to, to navigate into and it ends up running aground gra- instead outside the port and the Christians run down to the shore and they they grab the boat and they grab all the Muslims inside and start decapitating them, just start cutting their heads off. And, uh, and the sources and the sources claim that the women were involved in this, that the women were going down, they were grabbing Muslims for themselves and cutting them. Except the problem is they don't have proper weapons. They just have like you know, the kitchen knives. And so it ends up being this kind of gruesome drawn out process. Um, so, so you've got this, this specter of the, the women kind of jumping in with the, I don't know if you want to call it bloodlust, but, um, but certainly getting into, um, into the fray and, um, and executing people. Uh, and then you have women who are um, you know running about the camp, um, doing camp duties, and then also helping with siege operations. Uh, so there's one, for example, um, a woman who is with her husband, and they are trying to fill the moat at Acre. And the problem is Acre has this dry moat, right? So if you want to roll across a battering ram and bash down the gates, uh, you, you've got this big dip in front of you and you have to fill it in. Uh, And so they were taking wood and stones, basically any material they could to fill in that moat to make it nice and level so that you could roll the battering rams across, right? Well, apparently, uh, as they're doing this, she and her husband are filling the moat. There's a Muslim sharpshooter up on the walls, and he hits her with a crossbow, right? And he strikes her in the breast with a crossbow bolt. And as she's dying, she uh, says to her husband, she says, don't let my death be in vain. When I'm dead, take my body and throw it into the moat. And that way it'll help the moat get filled up faster so we can get our siege engines across. And at this point, the, uh, the Christian sources just, just erupt in this, uh, this righteous tizzy where you can imagine the, uh, oh, the faithfulness of this woman and, oh, her commitment to the cause, <laughs> oh, worthy woman who even in death wants to help the triumph of Christ. Um, so you've got women who are maybe riding around as knights, women who are decapitating Muslims, uh, women who are, um, are being thrown into the moat to facilitate the operation of the siege engines. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: I love it. Some of these women are so badass, but some of it is just so um, odd. Is that the right way of saying it? Odd?
0: Weird? Yeah, it's, it's different. It's it's certainly different. It's not the kind of thing you typically hear about when you talk about um, women in these sort of medieval camps. You hear about the, the laundresses, um, sometimes the prostitutes, um, sometimes the um, um, female clergy. You know, performing those sorts of roles, but you don't often read about this kind of savagery, I suppose. And, um, but, and also, I think with the moat, uh, this idea does of this of this become a this thing, the moat,
1: I was going to ask? What's that? The moat thing with the bodies. Does that, be, does that catch on?
0: It does.
1: Oh no, really? <laughs> it's,
0: a, it's a great trend, right? See, and, and I don't know if she, I, I don't think we can ascertain if she was the first body ever thrown into there. There may have been others, um, um, whether she came up with the idea or, or whether she saw it in action. Uh, but yeah, the, um, the horses, the, uh, the hor- corpses of, of horses and uh, pack animals, particularly who had died, uh, but then also some people. Uh, the idea to put them in and (laughs) what's to get a little bit more macabre about this. um, So they would throw the bodies in during the day to fill up the moat. And then one source notes that at nighttime, uh, the garrison, the Muslims inside would open the gates, come out, go into the moat and dismember the corpses, put them into carts and drag them away to empty the moat. So you would fill the moat in the morning with bodies and then empty the moat at night. Um, And it kind of went this, this back and forth this idea of the defenders jumping down into moats with, uh, with, you know, hatchets and swords and, and cutting up bodies and that that poor Christian woman, she, she may well have been dismembered and carted away at the end of the um, event.
2: So we have disease and starvation during the winter months and the inflated prices of chickens and eggs and hunting for, is it carob beans?
0: Yes, and carob fighting beans. over bread? Yeah, the, the winter times are really bad. The, um, you know, the, as, I, as I said, that this is a crusader camp that is trapped in between Saladin's army and the garrison inside the city, right? So when wintertime came, that means that your ships, your relief ships that are bringing supplies from Italy and other places, they can't get into port. Uh, in fact, they won't get into port. They all retreat to winter harbors. They refuse to sail. So you have whatever supplies you are uh, left with at the time. And those rapidly dwindle. You have at the Crusader camp, um, just to, to give an idea of the numbers, um, usually you're ranging between twenty and 30,000 soldiers in camp there. That's an awful, and those are those are um, those are the effectives. That doesn't include the camp followers and um, and other people who are hanging around. So you've got lots of mouths to feed, and there's not much food to go around. Um, and you're also in a, a situation where you've you've got problems of exposure. Now, I've been uh, last time I was at Acre, uh, it was in January, and it was a uh, a very blustery day, and it was cold. I mean, it wasn't snowing cold. It's not like cold here in Kansas, which can get you know, below zero uh, Fahrenheit, but but it was cold. And that kind of exposure, if you're living in tents, uh, if you're going your, about your day-to-day without a lot of warm weather gear, uh, it can get to you eventually. So we read about these massively inflated pr- uh, prices where um, you have the value of um, an egg, for example, going for these days, something like uh, 30 pounds. An egg, A single egg would cost you about 30 pounds in today's money. Uh, that's how precious it is. If you want a gallon of milk, uh, 300 quid or so, uh, to, to get you to it. So in that situation where you've got these massively inflated prices, nobody is paying 300 pounds for a gallon of milk. What are they doing instead? They're stealing it, right? Uh, and then they're getting in fights. Uh, there's a story about a baker who, um, is baking loaves and, um, these thieves come into his shop and they tie him to a chair and they make off with all the bread, uh, when these people are caught, they're brought before the courts, and then the bishops step in and and stand, you know, hold a trial over them. But there's a lot of fighting, and there is. You mentioned the carabines. There's a story about these two friends who decide they heard that there was on the other side of the camp. They heard that there was a tree with some beans on it, um, and so they go off and they find. I think it's eight carabines. I might have the number wrong. They find eight carabines. They spend all day walking over there, and they they get these carabines and they pay for them, uh, and then they get home and they find one has spoiled right? So one in the batch and they're so precious. They decide to trek all the way back and complain about it and get a new bean, which is (laughs) sort of unbelievable. If you think about, you know, 10 beans in front of you or or some amount, right. And one is bad and you spend all day trying to replace it. Uh, That's the desperation. Uh, And then you combine that with the exposure to the weather and then the disease that is running through the camp, uh, which is, you know, decidedly unsanitary. Um, You don't have good running water because the Muslims have, um, um, well, actually the Christians diverted part of the river away as part of the siege. So you don't often have fresh water. Um, you don't have the supplies you need. And so you have uh, people dropping one chronicler says by the twos and threes uh, each day. Um, and, you know, when there's no food and there's your disease ridden and there's not much hope, uh, not a lot to do. If you're not going to get a wrestling match or an archery contest, uh, you turn to the bottle. And so there's a lot of drinking. And then apparently a lot of people are, dry- are um, dying of alcohol overconsumption as well.
1: For those British listeners that heard you say zero degrees Fahrenheit and thought you sounded wussy, that's minus 18 Celsius in Kansas. Right. <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs> you talked about fighting. Speaking of, I just, I would love this because this is Britain and France. Philip and Richard fisty cuffs against each other. Did it happen?
0: It almost happened. It almost did. <laughs> Uh, you have So I mentioned that Philip was conducting, um, it was largely Philip conducting the uh, negotiations for the surrender of the city. And so he would have these Muslim ambassadors in in his tent, or not in his tent, in a tent close by, and, and his men would be talking to them and whatnot. And, and so there are these ceasefires, the idea that, okay, if we're going to be talking, you have to offer safe conduct to these Muslim leaders. They have to be able to come to our camp in safety and return in safety so we can negotiate in good faith. It's pretty standard practice. And so he would give safe conduct to to the, to the Muslims, he bring them to camp. And then on the other side of the Crusader camp, um, even though the negotiations were, were going on, you have Richard the Lionheart saying, I don't care, I'm going to attack the city anyway. Um, and so Philip gets so mad at one point, he supposedly, and this is, you don't know, did this really happen? Is this just one of the, the pro French writers kind of like, uh, you, know, you know, ginning up a nice, um, nice anecdote but supposedly he puts on his armor and he rushes out and you know basically you know wh- wh- where is that bastard um, I'm going to take him on right now um, and then the, you know his men surround him and say you can't fight the English king right and, it, and violence is averted but it almost came to it they really did not like each other when they were at Acre they were friends before that but they have a, a very swift falling out.
1: Um, as an English person I have to say if the story ends with the French winning a fight then it's made up <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, you'll hate my conclusion then, because at the end of the book, I, I give credit more um, more credit. I've give Philip more credit for the victory at Acre than Richard. I'm sorry.
1: No, that's fine. I don't. I don't <laughs> think many English people actually. Which, I mean, he was never here. So, in terms of, I mean, he's buried in bits all over France. He was never here. Yeah. Um, yeah. If he hadn't have been played by Sean Connery for 0.5 seconds at the end of Robin <laughs> and Prince of Thieves, I don't think anyone would give a damn. If I'm honest,
0: you might be right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Or um, who played? Hold on, um, Robin Hood Men in Tights didn't. Um, what's his name? Captain Picard guy pe- play Richard III as well.
0: <laughs> yes, he did. Yes, and um, and it has the uh, I think the long makeout scene with Maid Marian at the end, right? Captain <laughs> Picard, <laughs> which Mel oh, Brooks Mel Brooks pulls out his old <laughs> line and says, "It's good to be the king," right? <laughs>
2: uh, I loved, you know what? That's one of my favorite films, and I never understood it as a child till I finally grew up and started understanding adult jokes, and then the whole film just changed for me. Sorry, I know
1: we're going off topic here, but... <laughs> as we so frequently do.
0: I love it. Mel Brooks is one of my favourite directors.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> On the other side, um, Muslim Communications. They're using literally everything to try and get messages in and out, aren't they? I've got the list you gave us, pigeons, smoke signals and swimming couriers. I wouldn't fancy being one of the last ones. Not when the right. room is full of dead bodies.
0: Right exactly it's it's very it's tricky right because you have that garrison they're inside the city and they're being blockaded so they're they're all alone and and Saladin they can see his tents they see his flags way over there on the other side of the crusader army but they can't get to him Uh, Because the Christians are in between. So if you want to smuggle in supplies, if you want to get messages to the garrison uh, to coordinate attacks, for example, very often they would have these coordinated attacks where Saladin would attack from the east and the garrison would come out of the gates and attack from the west. Um, If you want to do that, then you have to find ways to communicate. So, yeah, so they're using birds. They're using smoke signals. They're waving flags. And occasionally you get these, these odd swimmers. You get swimming at Acre. Uh, which I just found fascinating. You get these, these Muslims who would dress in dark clothing, and they would put supplies around their belts. So it would be money, uh, it might be some medicine, um, some instructions perhaps, and then very often uh, little vials of, um, of Greek fire of this, um, this flammable naphtha that you could use to burn the uh, crusaders' catapults. And so you would tie them around your belt and then, you know, put a hood over your head and go down to the water and at nighttime try to swim across the water. Um, and if you've been to Acre, you, you know what I'm talking about because you've got the port the uh, the Bay of Haifa there, right, um, which is this huge expanse of water. And then you've got to get it from the shore over to the port and somehow into the port and then up into the city. And we know these swimmers, a lot of them made it. Uh, but many of them did not There are swimmers And these this is coming from the Arabic sources Where they say Well you know we sent out two swimmers And they didn't come back Right Or they never got to the city So they drowned uh, Or sometimes they're captured There's one who's caught in a fishing net uh, That the Crusaders had put out uh, So he's, he's captured Another one is found uh, And decapitated And then of course you take the the naphtha and you take the money and whatever they've got around their belt. But, um, but yeah, you've got this, this, this trapped garrison and, uh, they're mounting an absolutely heroic defense. Um, I, I find their performance to have been some of the best in the entire siege. I mean, they just, they drive off every single attack the crusaders mount, uh, through a lot of ingenious methods. But, um, once the ships stop running into Harbor, they've got the same problem with supplies, Uh, that the crusaders do. And so they start to suffer from disease and suffer from starvation and those sorts of things. So Saladin does what he can to communicate with them and to get stuff to them, uh, but it doesn't always work.
2: So what is your favorite siege anecdote?
0: Oh, you know, I really like that one about the, um, about the corpses in the, (laughs) I tell tell that, I tell that one a lot. I tell that one a lot. Um, You know, I think what there's a, there's so many of them, it's, it's hard to pick out one. Um, But I think, what, what, what I do find interesting is that there are these moments um, of charity, I would say. And I think just as, as an aggregate, I probably find those the most interesting moments where you have um, one side that is supposed to hate the other, that's supposed to be locked in this whole warfare, treating the other ones well. So I mentioned the return of the wrestlers, for example, uh, there's a, a, a story that goes a lot towards, the, the um, you mentioned Saladin at the beginning, towards his reputation for generosity, where uh, the Muslims kidnap a, uh, a, a little baby from the camp, and they bring the baby uh, to Saladin, and his mother finds uh, her way all the way into the Muslim camp and pleads for the child's return, right? Uh, and, and Saladin gives the baby back uh, to the mom. And these moments where uh, they allow each other to visit each other's headquarters and allow them to Depart in safety that the, the Muslim ambassadors can come and they can have a chat and then they can leave and nothing happens to them. Um, that there isn't any sneaking around or, or betrayals going on. Uh, the Christians go to Saladin's tent. Uh, and they spend time with the Sultan himself uh, and they have conversations they are allowed to depart in peace. And so I think as an aggregate, I, I find that very interesting that, you know, we talk about the crusades and we always make these huge generalizations about them clash of civilizations, um, you know, Christian Muslim violence, and, you know, in hundreds of years of animosity, uh, but when you get right down to it, they're people and they did know how to deal with others as human beings uh, on the battlefield of course uh you know locked in deadly combat and in the uh, preaching and in the, the the histories and the rhetoric and all of that sort of stuff of course it's very hostile uh, but on a very human level you see a, um, a a bit of a cordial human experience and i i think that helps to humanize our sense of warfare in general but also i think it just makes acre a really interesting siege because of that interpersonal dynamic
1: tell us how does the siege end
0: So it ends when the garrison surrenders. They come to the terms of the deal that I spoke of before. uh, And and once those terms are agreed upon and everybody swears their oaths, um, saying that they will abide by it, the garrison opens the gates to the city. They lays down its weapons. Uh, They surrender and the Christians enter. And that's really how the siege comes to an end. uh, Richard moves into the city. Philip moves into the city. Uh, They reestablish the Christian presence there. We have to remember it had been in Christian hands before Saladin retook it. Um, It had been for, for several decades. It had been in in Christian hands. So there's churches there and there's, um, there's places where Christians had lived before. And some of the former residents who had actually lived there are, you know, sort of moved back into their houses. Right. Um, So that's, that's really the end of the siege. The, the massacre comes after that um, quite some time after that, several weeks after. Uh, And that's really more of a postscript than anything. The siege is over at that point. The Christians have the city. It's summertime. They have access to the port. The Christian ships start steaming in, and, 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 and that's the end of the deal. And uh, afterwards, once Richard conducts his executions, he reforms his army, and he starts marching south along the Mediterranean to continue the crusade. Um, so
2: what does that mean for the rest of the Third Crusade?
0: Well, this is a, a point I've, I've kind of centered on, right? There, there was a huge bloodletting at Acre. Um, if you look at the military contests that take place within the siege. So as you mentioned, you know, it's, it's almost two years long, right? And they are fighting several battles, lots of skirmishes, and there, there's basically fighting every day in one way or one way or another. The, the bloodletting of the Christians is absolutely massive. Probably between twenty and 30,000 Christians die during the siege. Now, when they march out of Acre, they still have a force intact um, that, that Richard is able to take with him, but it is greatly reduced greatly reduced. And so one of the points I try to make is that that long siege cost them so many lives that they didn't have the manpower to do what they set out to do. So Richard leaves Acre. He moves down the coastline. He fights Saladin in a pitched battle. Uh, He ends up making two movements towards Jerusalem, but never actually attacks the city. And one of the reasons he gives is that he just doesn't have the combat power to do it. He doesn't have enough soldiers. He doesn't have enough equipment for the the kind of massive siege it would require. And so ultimately, Richard and Saladin are going to agree to a a multi-year truce um, in which they agree to cease hostilities and they sort of divvy up property. uh, And then Richard leaves for home. Uh, And so the crusade, I would argue, is ultimately unsuccessful in in its main goal, which was to retake Jerusalem uh, because the bloodletting at Acre was so great. If they had managed to find a way into the city more quickly, uh, if they had uh, punched away through the walls or if they had accepted some early offers of surrender, which did come, there were some very early offers. Um, if they had done that and not been so brash, they could have saved all their troops and they probably would have retaken Jerusalem. But as it is, the Third Crusade, uh, from the perspective of the Holy City, ends up being a failure. Uh, there are some people who would uh, make the argument. I get in you know, like Twitter fights once in a while with people about this. Um, people make the argument that the crusade was successful anyway, because Richard liberated Levantine ports. He opened up territories. He defeated Saladin's army. And there's, there's a lot you can hang your hat on. Um, and I'm sympathetic of that to a point, but I keep going back to the idea that if the goal was to reclaim Jerusalem for Christ. That goal was unfulfilled. Uh, and so it's Acre, which is the very first contest on the crusade that really determines the end of the crusade.
2: John, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking to us about the Third Crusade, this incredibly beautiful city. I think I'd call it a city, town. Um, mm-hmm. A bit of English um, and French rivalry. Alex enjoyed that. <laughs> and um, overall, it was an absolute excellent podcast. So thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me again. appreciate it.
1: Join us down the pub where we will be talking about history's most unlikely hero god knows what they're going to come up with for that one don't miss out join us tomorrow when we will be bringing you another sharp special we talk sharp battle we had a brilliant turnout for this one including the lovely Hugh Ross and we had Jason Salke of course we had Ali Aziri and we had just Ian McNeese, the legendary Ian McNeese so don't miss out on this one, there's a ton of cast there and they're all reliving filming Sharks Battle so don't miss out on that one join us on Monday when it will be my turn because Alina decided that she wanted to know all about Queen Mary in World War One so I and she knows that I get angry with people who think Queen Mary was stuck up and horrible and mean to her children so we talked all about everything this amazing woman did in the first world war to try and help the country on to victory so don't miss out on that one. There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...